Welcome back to Trad Men, everybody, where lies and falsehoods are trapped and exposed. No, I'm kidding. Um, that's a different show. <laughs> yeah. I've always wanted to. I've always yeah. wanted to just co-opt yeah. that a little bit, because yeah. I've co-opted the Paleocrats uh, intro, yeah. and we're, we should do a we should do a version of everybody else's intro. That might be kind of interesting. Guys, we have a really special guest uh, with us today. The Paleocrat has joined yeah. us from his studio live at where? Where are you located? Grand Rapids, Michigan. Okay, Grand Rapids, yeah. Michigan. All right. Uh, and we on. just found out he is not in normal people time zone, which is the central that is time so zone. fake, man. That is so <laughs> fake. That's, you know, if you, if it helps you guys sleep at night, you know, the thing is, Central Standard Time is not real. It's a LARP. It's a LARP for people who just can't just accept that Eastern Eastern Standard Time is supreme, and it's not going away. It's stuck, man. It, the world is stuck with. <laughs> EST and PSD yeah, and all that's that. our show <laughs> folks that's joining us and that'll be uh... yeah the mountain people and the central people we're like I don't know I, this, this yeah. is where we draw the line in time zones <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, we can uh, tolerate uh, all sorts of stuff dude but the central yeah, time zone that's, that's the line in the sand yeah. um, so yeah. we, we brought paleocrat on because he is sort of uh, a lay expert in a a movement that has been going on in the church for some time now that that I have found that people have asked me about it. And I found when it's one of those things, it's easy to be critical of, it's easy to talk about everything that's wrong with it or, or, you know, and, and maybe it is wrong. Maybe it's not right. Maybe it's not good and it's not of the church, but it's one of these things that I can't really speak on it because I don't know enough about it. And we were just talking before the show. One of the things that Tradiciones Custodes really illustrated to me is the damage you can do when you formed an opinion about something that's going on in the church that you don't really understand and you've sort of said, well, I don't need to understand it. I know what those people are like. Uh, pump your brakes for a second, have a little humility and maybe admit that you don't know everything and open yourself to the idea that there might be more to this than you may have suspected. Now, I suspect that at the end of this episode, those of you who have not formed an opinion about the charismatic movement may form one. Those of you who have already have opinion may still have that opinion at the end of it. But I think it might be beneficial. There's an old um, there's an old uh, Jesuit saying that everything that's true is ours, right? So we should never be afraid of learning things that are true. Um, and so, with that being said, Paleocrat, welcome to Trad Men, yeah. and we're excited to have you on. Um, yeah, thank you. Yeah, and I, it's just along those lines I wanted to add because I talked to Jeremiah offline uh, one evening and kind of started talking about the charismatic movement. And, you know, I, I told him, I said, full disclosure is I've never been supportive of charismatics in general, right? And before the show, I was starting to do some research on it, just to try to do some show prep and all that. And then I got to the point where I was like, you know what? I don't want to let my preconceived notions as a former Protestant who were anti-charismatic interfere with, uh, you know, maybe the Catholic charismatic movement. Because, you know, typically you think of charismatics in the Pentecostal movement, but I don't know if the Catholic charismatics are similar to that or not. So I didn't really want to skew my viewpoint on it, because like with all things, we should be open to change of heart, change of mind if the evidence presents itself. 
Yeah, I think, and if they're if they are our brother Catholics, then they ought to be embraced as our brother Catholics. And so that that should be that. But but first of all, before we before we start into whether or not they're it's good, bad, right, or wrong, <laughs> let's get into what it is, right? So so there might be some people listening to this program who've never heard of the charismatic movement, and if you had to describe the charismatic movement, how would you how would you where where would you start for somebody who's coming into it cold? Uh, well the the conditions right the the soil that preceded Vatican II so just the cultural soil right the theological soil like what were what was going around what was in the air at the time um you had these these uh Crisillo movement um a, a Christian family movement bible study groups that were going on there was a, a greater sense of a, like a direct kind of holiness, a direct experience where you are uh, devotional, even in a very personal way, emphasizing more personal prayer, things like that. So you have this going on and you also have just in, in the air. I mean, it's the, it's the day and age of um, the age of Aquarius, like that song, you know, or, or Quinn the Eskimo, you know, Quinn the Eskimo gets here. Everybody's going to jump for joy. I Nobody knows what that even means. But it was in the air at the time where we don't question Donovan. When yeah. Donovan says <laughs> yeah. And so but the idea being that um, that there was a there was a sense of this reform and, and this revolution that was happening and a new age and a new era that was coming about. And that was true, not just in the world of the hippies and you know, the drugs and the free love and stuff. It was also just in general. Yeah, it was had a to. sense. Yeah, there was a sense of that in general. Yeah, I when I, when I, I, I when I think about the Second Vatican Council, and it's 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 another one of those things of, oh, how could they have, you know, how could they have adopted these ideas or or felt the way that they felt? And I'm thinking, man, if I were alive back in the '60s, I can almost guarantee I would have felt exactly the same way. I mean, Cardinal Ratzinger, who is not somebody anybody would think of as a, a leftist or a Marxist or anything like that. He went to Vatican II in a suit and a tie. He was very caught up in a lot of the and a lot of the sentiment. Um, so I think I think you're right. I think it's important to kind of put yourself in the right cultural context there. Yeah, and it's it's also, you know, you, in the modern era, you become more familiar with people. Information by itself, right? So you you have radio, you've got TV, you've got telephones, you have travel, interstate, for example. The access to airplanes is much easier and boats and other things. And so you're going to be encountering all different groups, especially if you're in the West, especially in America where, where charismatic uh, Catholicism began, um, then you, you're going to be facing a lot of other denominations, like uh, denominations, Protestant ones. So those individuals are going to come and speak to you. Okay. And they are going, you're going to get to know them and you probably already did anyway. But that that sense that you're becoming more familiar, especially because people were emphasizing studying on their own. Right. So you have more people even going to school, things like that, uh, uh, kind of a, in, um, the intelligentsia in general. And so with all of those considerations and the the hope and the idea of change and refreshing and renewal and also the idea of expressing yourself just as a, as an individual if you can imagine the hippies right this idea of expressing themselves and allowing the emotions and the movements to come out and everything but that was also true just across the board you're having a lot of people 
who want to express those feelings of joy. And in, in, in a day and age where to imagine that in a place that is traditional posture was harder. Mm. It was harder for them. Kind of like active participation. Tra uh, people who go to Latin mass, I go to Latin mass. Active participation is the method of hearing mass. So if people were to do methods of hearing mass, which used to be in most early missiles, go back as far as like the 30s and stuff, you have that. St. Alphonsus has them. Uh, um, Father Lassance has them. You've got a method of hearing mass. One of the most popular is St. Francis of, uh, de Sales. So those methods of hearing mass was the, the individual learning to pray along with the priest, even though he couldn't hear the priest. Okay, so you are actively preparing your hearts and raising them up to the Lord before he tells you to. <laughs> so we've lifted them up, right? That's what we're doing. So, but that was no longer seen as active. So even, yeah. even mm -hmm. things that were active were not considered active anymore because when they thought active, there's movement involved. There's joy is, is joyously in a way that I'm even moving my arms like this. Like there's mm -hmm. a kind of motion vibrancy. creates emotion. Yeah, have yeah, you yeah. have you ever read the the book? I brought it up on our show a few times. Have you ever read the book by Father Blake Britton? What Vatican II really said? It's a longer title than that, but no. he he makes that point in the book itself about this idea of active participation. Like it's misconstrued when Vatican II called for an active participation. It's everybody gets this idea that they have to do something. Like yeah. I have to be active. I have to do something. But it's it's not in the doing that you're active, like physically or verbally or whatever. It's go, it goes to what you're saying. And he, I, I won't get into the whole thing, but he uses a beautiful example of the Blessed Virgin Mary, how she is the perfect example of how to properly, actively participate. And she probably wasn't walking through the middle of the aisle holding <laughs> the missile up and stuff. Right. You know? yeah. <laughs> like, you know, wearing some jeans and a T-shirt. So, you know what I mean? And so... Yeah. Um, but that was so that was in the air. Right. But it was also that you'd had going back a ways. And I went back just to make sure that because some people, they they throw the beginning of the Pentecostal movement. They throw it into Azusa Street. But Azusa Street wasn't until um, you have uh, 1906 through 1909. Uh, Pentecostalism becomes global under Seymour's leadership. That was uh, William Seymour. He got his, he accepted his Pentecostal doctrine from uh, Parham and Parham was in, well, in there, it was in Houston, but you have 1901. You can go back that far and say in 1901, Agnes Osmond speaks in tongues in Topeka. So Charles Parham calls tongues, the quote unquote Bible evidence for the baptism of the spirit. But if you push even further back than that, you've got people uh, in 1896, the Shearer Schoolhouse Fire Baptized Holiness Revival, that's one of those long names, um, they experienced tongues. Uh, Charles uh, Mason and C.T. Jones formed the Church of God in Christ in Lexington, uh, Mississippi in 1897. So you, you can go back to the holiness movement. And in that holiness movement, you're getting, you're getting into that place that finds its roots in the Shakers, right? In the the Quakers and the Shakers and everything, everything that you could imagine, except for the jumpers. <laughs> Believe it or not, John Wesley really did not like the jumpers. They bothered him immensely. I don't know why, hmm. but they they did. I was a real group actually called the jumpers. I'm, I'm just going to say I'm not familiar yeah. with what the jumpers are. Well, you, know, you, put, the you put the kibosh the on it. 
blame John Wesley. They'd probably be pretty cool at this point, right? Compared, well, I don't know. I think it's kind of like that video on YouTube of the guy who says who sang that song, uh, "Spin Me Right Round, Ready Right Round," and he's waving his socks in a circle with all the kids. Take off your shoes and socks. It's holy ground. That's probably that. So he, he saved us a lot of you know obnoxious nonsense. Um, but the thing is, that stuff had been going on for a long time. So you have people, and it goes back further than that. It goes people pressing swords on their bodies and stuff, and women telling dudes to hit them harder and stuff, and and for for the sake of the Lord, like weird things with the Jansenist convulsionary. So you can go back and back and back, and there's always been this strain that's in tandem. You have the the, the Orthodox more uh, using your high reason for this, where you're debating, you're integrating philosophy and theology and stuff like that. And then you have those who are more of the heart. Okay. They're more of the experience. And you see this in the division between theologians and mystics. So and we have that even in the doctors of the church. So those two strains, and they can go, both of them can go hog wild. The theologian branch, the theological branch can go to the point where it falls like really close to deism or into some weird rationalism. Okay. Where it starts to minimize the miraculous and minimize the extraordinary and, and even creation and things like that. Whereas on the flip side of that, the mystical turns into this thing where you start to split off because you're coming up with new revelations and God's you're experiencing this. And certainly that couldn't be fake. So the church must submit to you. So by either way you go, you have enthusiasm, you have extremes, yeah. but by the time you get in the 20th century, it had turned into and become a thing where it was identified as a separate act, as a separate action. So the earlier ones were more about the born again, like the moment you had an experience, a conversion experience. That's already settled in. Even for Catholic people, the way people talk about that and the way that they're fascinated with conversion stories and things like this, um, the idea of the Moravians kind of had a huge influence and Wesley did too. But by the time you get to the, the 20th century and tongues start coming around, and it quickly coalesces into groups that are essentially denominations. Um, didn't necessarily start out that way, but it quickly became that. And rivalries within, which then splits, but then now you have more denominations. So in a way, societally, it's even though it's breaking apart, it's actually getting bigger. If that makes sense. Even in the minds of people, because now instead of one church, you have three. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that happens. Their theologies get solidified. Because they, they split over certain reasons. Is it, does everybody speak in tongues? Is tongues a real language? Is it a spirit language? You know, what's the initial evidence? Is sanctification right away? Like immediate, like saved, sanctified, filled with the Holy Ghost. When people say that, they mean in the moment. Like, boom, you are saved, you are sanctified, you are filled with the Holy Ghost. Three things, right away. So those differences created... um kind of a grounding so not just the soil but also kind of created provided nutrients that fueled that and made it bigger right and and kind of provided foundations for other people and from there ultimately you would eventually have uh the catholic charismatic renewal i mean it's so but it's so interesting because the catholic the catholics at least in my perspective from from my history are sort of notorious for their um 
oh, I, I would say non-experimentation with other spiritualities. So, you know, there's, there's what's Catholic and then there's everything else that's Protestant. And the Protestants are sort of free to um, experiment with different spiritual charisms and different things like that. But the Catholics, we don't, we don't do things like that. And then something, yeah, and something in the 1960s sort of shifts with, there seems to be a shift. I would argue, believe it or not, a shift in the positive and in a, in a positive direction of, well, we are free to explore spiritualities that are not in conflict with what has been, with what we know to be Catholic. So in other words, um, like, and I know the Eastern churches have been a part of the Catholic church for longer than the 1960s, but, but I'm saying that I personally probably would never have thought to, ex to, to explore the Eastern spiritualities that are in the church had I not grown up in the post-conciliar Catholic church had, because there, there was that sort of sentiment of, you know, you're, we're free to do everything that isn't in error. So and the 1960s really is when is it is is this a movement amongst clergy and bishops or is this primarily amongst lay people? Lay people, man. Okay. Yeah. So lay people. There's actually a really good link, and I'll I'll provide it to you guys before I depart. Uh, that way you can put in the video description and stuff. Sure. Um, it talks. It's over at Brill.com. Let me see. I'll I'll find the name of the the piece here. Chapter seven. Okay. I it's um by Valencia uh, Siciliet. I don't know if that's a proper way to pronounce it. Chapter seven, the origins of the Catholic charismatic renewal in the United States, okay. the experience at the university of Notre Dame and South Bend, Indiana. And it's between 1967 and 1975, but it says that basically you're dealing with a lot of middle-class educated people. Um, so many of them, in fact, they were intellectuals, right? So you're talking, uh, Notre Dame, you're talking uh, Michigan State University, as well as Michigan University. And there's another one, too. The other one is uh, DeKesney, and that's in Pittsburgh. So the early origins of this, um, it, it was talking about this, this article, is saying that you end up having this founding myth that it took place on the weekend of the uh, in February 17th, 17th through 19th of 1967 in Pittsburgh at this place called or the, the DeKesney weekend. And at that weekend, you have the um, all of the all of the ingredients are there. You have a number of, of people there who are important to the story as it develops over time. Still some important to this day, like, you know, individuals that that stick around. But it's from there, and because it's associated with uh, colleges and universities, you have the student body that's spreading it around. And there's a, there's a sense of a feeling of um, not only that they as lay people have a greater responsibility now and a greater role um, it, to the point that I think it's like borderline woe where even lay people start laying hands on other people. Mm -hmm. um, but also because of the university setting, you now also have different religious bodies that you may in a, in a society that's riddled with drugs and free love and other things, you may find common cause with people who, while not Catholic, are still on your side of those debates. So you then find yourself more in line with at least in allegiances 
with groups like the uh, Christian Businessmen Association, for example, that was a major player in spreading around, uh, as well as the Jesus people. That's another group that was spreading it around. So, or it, strangely enough, Episcopalians, because they were more ecumenical. So they were down talking to us. Yeah, it, I was surprised about yeah. the, the, I was surprised that the Episcopalians were involved with the <laughs> kind, yeah. of, kind of founding because, you know, the, the, I'm sorry, I interrupted you. Go, go ahead no, and finish, finish your thought there. But I, I just, I just wanted, to, yeah. So one of my questions to you was going to be like what you just described. It sounds like you affirmed that this is kind of the beginnings of, of the Catholic Charismatic movement. If these renewals and, and prayer services, and it sounds like the renewal was very ecumenical in nature. Would you say oh, big that time. is correct? Oh yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so like, go ahead. Yeah, so just just a question uh, follow up to that would be before uh, the big push for ecumenicalism after the Second Vatican Council. I mean, I don't think anybody really disputes that tongues happened in the apostolic age, right? But is there a is there a history in the Catholic Church uh, at any point uh, of of uh, speaking in tongues or charismatic renewal in general, or or did that? Did, did it honestly just truly really take off after the Second Vatican Council? Well, they w within the church, there were examples that they point to. So some of them that they point to are um, things that would be more like ecstasies or okay. they turn into kind of conspiracy, almost conspiratorial sounding where you say, um, you know, Teresa of Avila, when she's talking about these sort of ecstasies and tells people not to pursue them, that you should not seek those things. And that's, and how that's different from people who say you should seek the, the baptism of the Holy spirit. You should seek those kind of encounters with the Holy spirit um, and experiences that they say, well, she was, you know, because of the inquisition, because of people kind of leaning over her shoulder and w watching what she's saying, she's guarded. But if you look, it's actually still promoting it and we're still reading it. And so we know about it. And so <laughs> in a weird way, it's still getting out there. And, but they're they're kind of infusing it right now. There are there are people, and a guy sent me a, a, a PDF. It's a big book, and it's a collection of historical instances where this sort of thing is talked about. I have not read this, but I will tell you, um, the guy at least that gave it to me because he heard me talk about it on Meaning of Catholic, and he said, "I think you'd really appreciate this book. I think you'd appreciate it because of the scholarship of it." And this guy is a scholarly guy. And so I was kind of surprised to know he was down with that. <laughs> I was, I didn't know that I it actually took me off guard. So um, there would be, but it's really more, I, in my studies from it, it's not so much the instances where people are just like, yeah. And we started speaking in tongues and describing it in the exact way that we're talking about now. Um, and I think that should be probably an admission across the board because a lot of the history that they talk about involves their having learned a lot of this, in fact, from Protestants and even getting hands laid on them by Protestant ministers, how it started. Hmm. So and that's what I was talking about just a moment ago is like, if you go back, uh, it said during the National uh, uh, Cursillo Convention in 1966, a group of people in Pittsburgh met Steve Clark and Ralph Martin. Um, they were members at the time in East Lansing. So that's where you get the um, that's where you get uh, Michigan State University. But it said that they suggested the reading 
of uh, John Sherrill's The Cross uh, and the Switchblade, the story of Episcopalian David Wilkerson's ministry among, among young gang members and drug addicts in New York City. So then you have an instructor in the theology department at Duquesne. Um, you have him reading another one of Sherrill's books called They Speak With Other Tongues. And that's on glossolalia and the experience of the Holy Spirit. And they were profoundly touched by that content. So you have an Episcopal, it's, it's a story about an Episcopalian guy, right? A ministry that is uh, on the streets dealing with gangs. I read that book when I was a kid, The Cross and the Switchblade. So I read that um, as a, you know, in, in school growing up. Um, and so it's a popular book, mainly within Protestantism. But, but through this, you end up having uh, an Episcopalian priest comes in to Duquesne once for a lecture. His name's William Lewis. Um, and they, it said that, of course, it wasn't surprising that they reached out to an Episcopalian because the, not only because the charismatic uh, revival going on for them, the movement going on for them, but because they were more ecumenical. They weren't as anti-Catholic as Pentecostal groups were. And so it was easier to, to approach them. But then it said that in the end, uh, there was a second meeting that happened uh, January 13th, 1967. At that second meeting, uh, Kiefer and another instructor in theology at Duquesne, Patrick uh, Bourgeois, Bourgeois, participated and they were pray uh, and they were prayed with for baptism in the Holy Spirit. The following week, they laid hands on two co Catholic colleagues. Um, and that's kind of where you end up. <laughs> that's where you see this stuff spread. And then it, it turns in and it develops. It goes on to other place, the Ark of the Dove retreat house. That becomes a big thing. They read the first four chapters of the, the Acts of the Apostles. And in preparation, they read Cheryl's book on David Wilkerson, and it was given to participants. You have 30 students and faculty that were there. Um, and during that, they invoked the Holy Spirit. You have major players who were there who later became even some of their historians and some of their main uh, spokespersons. And they experienced a dramatic presence of the Holy Ghost, charismatic gifts, including speaking in tongues, prophecy, and healing. And so in that whole mix, you can see already the involvement of Protestant, not only Protestant ministers laying hands on Catholics, but also to impart the spirit, to impart the third person of the Trinity <laughs> to, to us, um, but also the, the theology. So you're priming in a way, you're, you're reading certain chapters uh, of, of, of the book of Acts, the first four, and you're reading another book that kind of plays into this idea, but it's using language that is debatable if it's even describing the same thing. Yeah. You know what yeah, I mean? It, that's yeah, where it, it comes from. It seems very, you know, talking about the laying on hands of by Protestant ministers to me in today's time and age seems very scandalous to me. I know that, you know, I know a lot of people don't view it that way in, in today's times, but I would think that, throughout the history of Catholicism, that would be very scandalous, at least since the Reformation, you know, the, the laying on hands of a Protestant minister imparting gifts on you. Um, I wouldn't think that would look, be looked at as favorable. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, yeah. well, see, so, so Jeremiah and I were talking before the show and he wanted me to understand something that he's, he, he's not a member of the charismatic movement, correct? That's yeah. yeah. Okay. So, but I've spoken so, in tongues, but you, but, but yeah. you have experience with this. So, yeah. If I, I would pose some questions to you and I want you to sort of respond as, as if 
respond how some how somebody who was a member of this movement who firmly believes in it would respond because i i see some objections that uh, it's possible there might be very good answers to but i mean one of them being that i i've been to a charismatic mass before and to me it looked like this is a way we can get people who are in the who are members of uh, the, the Pentecostal churches or the Seventh Day Adventists to say, well, see, you can be Seventh Day Adventist and you can be Pentecostal, but you can do it within the Catholic Church. And sort of when you when you and so if it if being Catholic means you can just be anything, then being Catholic means doesn't mean anything. And then sort of that sense. Um, fair analysis or a little or kind of a broad brush, uh. what do you think? I probably I personally, even mm -hmm. now, I would say broad because we have enormous differences in our spirituality. So mm -hmm. we have now let me preface this by saying that you may have different emphases on spirituality, but it typically doesn't involve the idea of, you know, very unique experiences unique to your school. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, that's yeah, the closest thing would, would you'd have to even go outside of there. And that'd be the hesychasm stuff, right? The East, they would say we have this direct experience, you know, with the, the energies, um, that sort of a thing where that's the closest stuff you've got. But it would be more than just the experience. It would be resulting in what they consider to be the initial evidence of speaking in tongues. Mm -hmm. so they, when they say that, they really do mean that unless you do that, that's the initial evidence. So the very first thing that happens when that occurs to them in their, in what they believe is that it leads to tongues. I think that a lot of these things are contestable, but that doesn't mean that the basic idea is out of play. So mm. think about it this way in the book of Corinthians, you have some real loon bird stuff going on there. I mean, quackadoodle. In fact, it's a lot like what, this stuff here because people would walk in. He says, if people walk in and they see you guys doing this, they're going to think you're crazy. Yeah. that's what people say about them. <laughs> they're like, if you walk in and you see a bunch of people speaking in tongues, they're going to think you're nuts. And you go, I know that's what Paul said. So they, someone could make the argument and say, I actually agree with you. I'm a tongue talker. I agree with you. I think we need to have order. The church should help us. Okay. Yeah, Cause yeah, that's it, what it took before. It took an okay. apostle. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, and, and that was really my only question that I really had to uh for you as far as why i'm so hesitant to jump on board with it was because of this letter to the corinthians because he because he does talk about uh saint paul does talk about uh keeping order because tongues is for unbelievers and they walk in and they see you doing all this crazy stuff they're gonna say we're out of here and yeah, yeah. and and you know i know paul also saint paul also mentions that if you don't have one to two interpreters to keep silent so well, it's a, to, but not just to keep silent, but to pray between yourself and God and in tongues. He doesn't say to stop. He says that. Right. And he yeah. says, because you're speaking in a, you're praying to him in, a, in, in tongues. And um, it's meaningful in that sense. But if it doesn't have interpretations, it's not uh, uplifting to others. It's just right. sounds. They don't know what it means. So it's good between you and God because God knows what it means. Right. right. And your spirit would, but not to the body. And so that would be the order question. I, I think another thing about order, here's one, right, that I, I would propose. I'd throw it out there to charismatics and I'd say this would be something, wouldn't it, that could be good. 
is in the way that they function, a lot of times, you know, they, they'll say they have tongues and somebody at the end of a service normally or at a key point will all of a sudden start speaking in tongues very loudly in the group and everybody kind of gets quiet. And when that happens, somebody is crying out in tongues and it's it, a lot. Sometimes it's emotional. I mean, you can hear this, this from the gut, man, coming out from these people and they're, they're weeping. People are weeping about it. And all of a sudden, somebody, they say, hold on, and they all wait. And then somebody gives the interpretation. Now, that interpretation is not, um, I'll, I'll ignore the, the question as to whether or not you would know ahead of time an interpreter, okay? Um, because it kind of indicates that you might, if it says, if there's not an interpreter there, keep silent. Right. So if you would almost have to know, you know, instead of waiting for somebody to have the unction for that in the moment. But the the idea being that when they interpret and you see it in experience, it typically almost always takes the form of thus saith the Lord, I say unto you, my people. And it's it's God first person. And it's typically some kind of Shakespearean stuff going on with that. Some kind of King James English. Um, and so. The problem with that is that is that the way that the Bible describes tongues is that it's a prayer, thanksgiving, supplication, praise. I think those are the four. There's four different things that it describes it being. And each one of those, it says, when you when you pray in tongues, you are speaking not unto men, but you are speaking to God. OK, so you're not it's not horizontal. It's vertical. Right. And so imagine if it was prayer in tongues. It could be the Our Father. It could be a Hail Mary. Just take that as a prayer. That's a prayer. Or Thanksgiving, it would still be vertical. We're thanking him, mm -hmm. right? So when somebody gets up and interprets that and says, thus saith the Lord, I say to you, that is back down to us. That is, that is not interpreting my prayer to God. Acts, in the book of Acts, the one that they always say that they're going to, they're they're declaring the works of God. They're declaring it. They're saying of the great things that God has done. That is not the same as thus I say to you, because that essentially speaking the private revelation and prophecy so and yeah. prophecy. Right. It's, yeah. Yeah. And so they get blurred on all of these things and the church yeah. without the church being there, they're they can't help that because there's no it's it's mysterious. It's mystical. There's how do you resolve it? But that would be the problem. And if, if they feel that they can just go to Protestant sources and look in a bunch of their manuals on systematic theology from, you know, some of these Pentecostal guys that they're going to get good answers, they're barking up the wrong tree. The church is the only one that would be able to settle that. And, you know, I don't I don't know. I don't want to say that they're not asking fervently for that. But that is something I think would help because then it wouldn't be disorderly. Mm -hmm. It would be orderly and it wouldn't be disruptive. It wouldn't be chaotic. You wouldn't have a bazillion people. They may be speaking in tongues, but between themselves and God. And so I think those would actually help even people who may not do it or may not even believe that we should, that it would at least make it more palatable for them. Yeah, so, I think, yeah, I think order is, would be very important because like you said, that distinction that Paul makes afterwards about the interpreters. I guess my question real quick, I'll just to add on to that. When, when Catholics speak in tongues, when the charismatic Catholics do this, it, when is this typically done? Because I I've never been to a mass where I've seen it. Is it, 
it, do, do they do it during the mass or is it in other type of uh, gatherings or, yeah. or, or how does it occur? Well, there. Okay. So as far as I am aware um, from my experience with them, cause I've been to a couple as a Catholic, right. And most of the time they are done outside of mass. So like okay. now they may be, they may be in a congregation. They may be in a sanctuary. And that's, and that was a little weird for me you know, some of the stuff going on there that day. And I'm like, we're all in the sanctuary here. I don't know about this, but you, you have um, a lot of these, these meetings in people's homes. So they have homes, they, they do special worship services where they get together. It's typically involving music or Bible studies and stuff like that, where they get together and they read about the saints or they get together for prayer. I mean, look, these people are legit praying. They're legit reading their Bibles too. <laughs> like, I don't know. There's a lot of Catholics that don't do either of those. And so, no, yeah. It, and, yeah. And my question on them is never once have, do I question the sincerity of people that do this, but you know, sincerity doesn't always mean yeah, yeah. that it's necessarily right. But uh, just the fact that you're saying they really don't typically do it during mass kind of to me, and maybe I'm thinking about it wrong, really sends a powerful message that if it really doesn't occur during mass, just, just, how uh, how should I say this? Just how mass is something different, how we should view it and approach it differently than than sometimes we do, um, especially well, but, within some but on parishes. That subject, you know what I'm saying? But on that subject, I, I've been to a, a mass at the Catholic Charismatic Center here in Houston, Texas. I didn't know we had one. I did, oh, yeah. yeah. I didn't see any speaking in tongues that I remember, but what I did see was a... A, a gigantic liturgical abuse of the Novus Ordo Mise. But this liturgical, I mean, everybody's got their own version of the Novus Ordo Mise abuse. And this version of the abuse was geared towards a Pentecostal Seventh-day Adventist style of worship. So in the middle of, hmm. uh, of the offertory, such as it is in the Novus Ordo Mise, the priest would take a break so that he could talk uh, to the church like this uh, and then people would yeah, raise their hands yeah. up like this yeah. uh, and then they'd be dancing in the aisles uh, and, I, and I just thought okay I know for a fact that that's not an official liturgy of the Catholic Church right therefore yeah. everything they're doing is an abuse yeah is there a way is 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 there a way to have this movement without just committing a gigantic liturgical abuse and yeah. and 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 have it be, a unique thing within the church that, I mean, do you just, does that make that question make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, I think you can, you know, it, it would be, but it's one of those things where a lot of times when they do it during mass, it's normally not the primary morning mass either. It's normally an evening mass a lot of times. Mm -hmm. And normally it's a, a mass that is geared to people that that is what they do. So you have different masses that, Let's say are, you know, people who are like, well, you go to the Latin mass or you go to the, wait, it's not Tenebrae, is it? Is that the, I forget the name of the mass, but it's like a, it's a quiet kind of thing. It's uh, I forget what it's called, but it's, it's quieter. They dim the lights down. A lot of times it's, it's got Latin uh, that's sung throughout it, but it's not exclusively that. Mm -hmm. um, but yet it's, it's, uh, you know, mass of Paul the sixth. And so you say, okay. Well. <laughs> and, but there's different ones that you'll see. Now these ones, um, you know, you may have it to where it's geared more like that. And it's not so much, you know, a mass. Now I, I personally, just so people know, number one, I don't presently speak in tongues or anything like that. I've never been to a mass where that's the case. 
And I personally, even when I was okay, more actively involved in that sort of thing, I did not like that idea because it was, there's a time for everything. And you go, you know, you're able to do tons and tons of things, right? You, when you're done with mass, if you want, why don't you set up a, a thing to get together after mass where after you've taken the communion that you're able to go and you're worshiping like crazy and praying like, you know, wild over somewhere, right. doing your thing, being joyous in the Lord. I mean, it, just do that. But the yeah. idea of having, you know, you know, sister Susie and brother Bob, you know, running down the aisle, twirling shirts and stuff and felt <laughs> banners like it's just garbage. <laughs> right. So I'm like, I, you don't want that. And you don't want the guy huffing and puffing like, you know, some kind of Pentecostal preacher you know, a church of God, snake handling guy in the middle of a service in the middle of an offertory. It's totally inappropriate. Right. And so you say there's an appropriate time for that. And you would think you would think that it wouldn't just be ordered, but it would be it would be fitting and appropriate that in that an activity of the Holy Ghost would not be so disorderly during that period. And if they don't think that's disorderly, I would wonder what is like I've seen I've seen some weird videos <laughs> like Steubenville. I've seen some weird stuff from there where you got the ladies and there's like 10 or 12 of them that, you know, and I, I don't want to dog boomers. Right? I love my, I love my boomers, but it, they're boomers, these ladies in their pantsuits and stuff. And they're just booking around the church, speaking in tongues, falling on the ground, waving felt banners. And it's like, I, you know, a plus for their excitement. Um, but at the same time, you know, there's an inappropriate, just like there's an inappropriate way to laugh. Like if you're if you're at a funeral or you hear news sure. that somebody was raped and you laugh, people go, oh, right. But that doesn't mean laughing in and of itself is wrong right. or crying. Yeah. It can be wrong in a certain setting. Sure. All of that stuff says something can be good and fine and decent in and of itself and maybe totally appropriate in certain circumstances. But in some, no. And I think the mass personally, I think the mass is one of those. Um, although I would say I have given a little bit more on the idea of there being certain places around the world where liturgical dance is different, right? I'm not saying liturgical dance in America. <laughs> like I was saying, I'm like, you know, cause people are like, what about Africa? I'm like, oh, you know, I, I personally, if I was, if it was me, I'd be like, you know, the major time steel gloves. <laughs> I'd say never, you know, I'd be, I'm that guy, but it, in fairness, sure. But this kind of stuff, no. Well, so does does the modern day Catholic Church, which doesn't seem to be able to even possess enough nuance to determine that the Roman rite is any good or not, do, does the modern day Catholic Church possess enough nuance to determine something that is so nuanced? I mean, in other words, this task that we're setting before us that this can be done correctly, but the church needs to guide us. Mm -hmm. Does the Catholic church have enough guidance left to give people on such a nuanced subject when it can't really even seem to, it seems to really struggle with the simple stuff now. Yeah. And, and so do, do is, is hoping one day that they will get around to figuring out the correct way for this sort of obscure movement to be able to do this. Is that realistic or is is that uh, something yes. that that's a yeah. good question? I think I well, my answer would be yes, okay, Un, unequivocally, yes. And that's because 
We do not trust in the chariots and horsemen of the magisterium, the men, right? In their minds. Um, well, that's it's good. the Holy that's Ghost, right? So the Holy Ghost, the negative charism of the Holy Ghost mm -hmm. is the only reason why we can say that we trust when we do the act of faith that I believe these and all the other truths, which is a funny thing to say, if you think about it, like it, the act of faith has like a handful of things at the beginning. And then it's like, and there's a lot more. I just believe it all. <laughs> like, and, and it says why it says, because God can neither deceive nor be deceived. It doesn't yeah. say because the Pope is mega dope or because the Cardinals are super smart. It doesn't anything like that because there have been really ones that are not the hottest to trot. There's been bad ones. So, but it's, we do not trust in those chariots and horsemen. Um, but so if the church did speak on this, I believe that it would, it would do just like everything else. If it was, and it would be ordinary magisterium, you know, it, I, I don't, they're not going to come out. <laughs> I don't think with it extraordinary in, you know, ex cathedra definition of this, sure. but I think it'd be an ordinary magisterium. It'd be, in the encyclical tradition, which already crept in, you're already seeing things that they've talked about, events that they've attended, groups that they've recognized. Um, and they've, they now have a group called Charism that is a vehicle with the Vatican that assembles the names of groups, their locations, kind of what they're doing, where they came from, uh, the, and they're providing literature so that you can have kind of a hub with that, which is, that's good, that brings order. And that's that is actually uh, incrementally in a direction that seems like the church would accept it. You, if the church wasn't leaning in that direction, you would not have a, a vehicle set up like that that is attempting to make it a hub to ensure that they're getting stuff that they can analyze the material because some of it went off the rails. I mean, you had you had weird splits. People have magical visions, and next thing you know, the church is heretical and the whore Babylon type stuff. So you're, you you have it go off the rails, and there's they, they don't want that, and most charismatics don't either. So the church has has taken it. So if the church, if and when, and you have to believe it's going to the, the idea they're going to kick this down the road forever. I don't envision that. I mean, we're already at sixty years. So at sixty years into this, um. They, I anticipate that they will eventually make us make a more official statement, maybe even something that would find its way into the catechism as an official statement as to what people are experiencing. Because right now, people can debate if it's real or not. Yeah, you yeah. can look at you can look at people, even even priests that are otherwise cool dudes. Well, right? It, yeah. it almost seems like they're gonna have to because yeah. It, uh, from the, the numbers, it looks like it's pretty large as well. The movement, right? Gigantic. Yeah. yeah so, yeah, yeah. so, yeah. so their, their their hand is eventually going to be forced in guiding people. I would assume. Well, and that's and that's the point is that when you get as big as they have, and you and going out in missions, getting and these are these are not these are not just like everyday folks. Some of these people, you're talking like the intelligentsia you're talking academics you're you know people who you would not necessarily expect and these people are not just advancing you know low level low brow material some of these people you know and it's weird like ralph martin like you have ralph martin people talk about him and it, it's like even trads are like oh yeah i, I got this thing about ralph martin and he and wrote and you're like, dude, it's, um, you know, this dude's at home speaking in some tongues and stuff. And so that when that happens, 
at this level and when the west is especially the the you know uh anglo <laughs> the anglo people um that we're aborting ourselves out of existence we're not even reproducing ourselves barely to our own numbers so you know a mother and a father die and they're what 2.2.1 kids on average they're not they're, yeah. they're barely keeping themselves alive whereas other other uh, cultures other places around the world are having tons of kids mm. right and so those places and they're making converts and a lot of those people who are converting they're coming over but if we went down and looked at what they're doing we may find there's like revivalism, like major time outdoor revival meetings with people speaking in tongues and praying over people and people claiming to be healed and stuff like that, that we would typically associate with stuff like TBN, right? Trinity Broadcast Network or yeah. Benny Ken Hinn, Copeland and Kenneth Copeland. Yeah. And the fact that Kenneth Copeland is Kenneth Copeland and the whole that whole gang of word of faith people. They have taken a position about the Catholic Church that is dramatically friendlier, not even a little bit. We're talking dramatically friendlier to the Catholic Church than you name almost any Bible believing Protestant group, almost any. And they they uh, connect with priests. They connect with bishops. They go to Rome. The Pope has written letters. I think to Copeland himself wrote a letter right about different things. And you say these people. In fairness, I'll say this, a lot of, I think a lot of people would think that, well, that's weird. I mean, what about John MacArthur? I mean, wouldn't he have more? I mean, he's like a Bible believing guy. He's a conservative dude. He's not wacky tobacco speaking in tongues and falling all over the floor. That guy is way rabid in his anti-Catholicism. Oh, yeah. Almost any of your Sola Scriptura people who don't believe in mystical stuff, right? I mean, their views on healing their views on what can happen to the body, like even after death and things like that, our stories of our saints, that's like, that is closer to them. But they're further away on the things they're further away on, they're worse. But they're closer to us, even on the idea of blessed objects, that we have blessed objects, that we bless rosaries and, we, you know, other things like that, that they, they would say, well, that makes sense to me. And so there's things that they would believe that actually make it easier for them to work with us. And I think that they like the, our Vatican is very wealthy. <laughs> I think they look at it and they're like, that's good. Cause if, if they take a position that says that that sort of thing is a, is a proof of righteousness, they're like, that guy's the, that, that place is really righteous. We're like, slow that up. But thank you for loving our Vatican. Right. So I, I, yeah. my concern though, I mean, I, I, I'll be honest that, that uh, if you're somebody who you know listens to our show and you're listening to this and you're like, how can you guys take, why, why, why are you guys being, why are you guys working so hard to be sympathetic to these, these people and things like that? I want you to remember how you felt when you read, when you read some of the stuff coming out of the Vatican about people who go to the traditional Latin mass and you're thinking, well, that's not me. That's not true. That's just, you know, if you, so if you don't like people doing that to you, then don't do it to other people. Yeah. That being said, yeah. I still, I still have big concerns as I think, as I, as I'm sure you do that yeah. this needs to be handled in the right way. And I not only don't have faith in the, in the chariots and the horsemen, I, 
man, sometimes I struggle to have faith in, in the system at all. I, I just don't know, like, like it's, it's, it's hard for me to wake up every morning and still have faith in the church. It's easy to be cynical about the Catholic church. It's getting easier every day. And I'm not a guy who comes by supernatural faith easily. Like yeah. most of the time I wake up and I think a lot of people just sense that there's a God and that God loves them. Most of the time I wake up in the morning and that's not a place I reach automatically. My, my, I have to rationalize myself there that it's better, that it's better to believe than it is to not believe. But do I just get an internal sense of God? Most of the time, no. So I really struggle with faith a lot. And I, I particularly struggle with the leadership in the Catholic church and their ability to do just about anything correctly. <laughs> I mean, we had to, we had to drag them kicking and screaming in 2004 to the realization that molesting children was wrong. And we like, yeah. we had yeah. to drag them there. Yeah. And then at the end they were like, fine, I won't do it anymore. Ah, you guys are so determined not to be cool about this. Yeah. So I, I'm not convinced that for the most part, they can get really anything right anymore. Um, but but maybe there's maybe there's room for me to grow that way. You know, I, I, I like I said, I don't know everything and I definitely will never discount somebody's experience of a charismatic experience, the speaking in tongues and things like that. That's not really what concerns me. It is the the people who can use this as an opportunity to push an agenda to further Protestantize the Catholic Church and that's really my principal concern with it. Does that make sense? Yes. Uh, well, yeah, I'll, and I'll just follow up on that last part is, um, you know, the thing is one of the, one of the remarkable things, and I, I, let me state this again, just in case people come in late and they're like, dude, who's this guy? What's he saying? Right. Um, I do not presently speak in tongues. I have not spoken in tongues in years. Mm -hmm. um, but I grew up in a charismatic community as a Protestant. I, my dad was raised Pentecostal. My grandfather had, he was part of the, the Christian Businessmen Association that I mentioned earlier that Catholics were kind of going in there and having these experiences and then having uh, prayer groups at their house and Bible studies at their house. And that was new back then. It was kind of taboo a little bit. There were priests that didn't like that. But I've, I've tried over the years, I've taken hard positions in different ways where I've struggled being caught in many ways like if it's analogous to in politics, I'm caught and in culture, I'm caught between Wall Street and Maine. Mm. So the idea that I'm part of flyover country, I'm, uh, you know, I have hillbilly in my blood like crazy for real. Um, my grandparents, my great grandparents were like shine runners and stuff, <laughs> like basically Dukes of Hazard with a bunch of booze. I and had so, some of those in East Texas. <laughs> yeah. So like that, that's my family, you know, my, my, my grandmother, bless her heart, right? She still says that stuff like that. Bless her, you know, bless her heart. But, you know, and the uh, the kind of stuff that she brews up for uh, fixing fixing any kind of cult, anything in the world. It's, <laughs> she says, well, I wish we had some shine and we have some honey and some strawberry and, <laughs> and rock candy. You got to have the rock candy. And it just takes care of everything. Lickety split. <laughs> like, you know, give it to me, grandma. But um, the, the, the thing is, is like there will always be part of me that is that guy. Country boy will survive guy. But there's also part of me that loves this city that says. I love going to the ballet. I love going to theater. I love going to zoos. I love going 
to all these fancy games, baseball games and stuff. I love it. So I like culture, right? Um, and it, I'm caught. It's the same with this, man. Yeah. So I, I really am. I'm caught because on the one hand, I love theology, apologetics, philosophy. I, I'm trying to get back into seminary. So I'm, I, which would be my first Catholic seminary that I've been to. I would like to get, pursue my master's degree for that. So that's what I'm trying to do. On the other hand, I am by just me as a guy, very exciting, like excitable. I am very animated in what I do. I have a lot of emotion. So it's part of who I am. If people have heard me talk about any, anybody watching my show knows <laughs> they're, oh. like, they're like that guy. Yeah. He's howling at the sun. Literally. That's right. So that that's also me. And I said before the show, I said, look, I'm the, I'm the dude who would be the suit and tie briefcase guy. I've been that, but I'd also like to be the guy in those corduroys, you know, with a bunch of wooden beads around my you know neck and stuff, wearing some kind of flannel doing, you know, with the tambourines, singing in tongues at the great lakes or something like that is also me for real. Like I really am that guy inside. And so I look at people like this and I say, I know what it feels like to do that. I also know what it feels like to say, dude, that's, I feel so intimate with God and that I, I felt like God was alive, not just an idea in my head, not just a, a placeholder for an argument with somebody, but God was alive and a, a burning fire. It was awesome. And I felt just an overwhelming presence of him. And even when I didn't, that itself was an overwhelming thing. That was also great, right? The dryness of the desert that you're, you're, it's, it's in your head. You can almost, you know, smell the salt from the ocean, right? Reading the Bible it animates it. At the same time, I also know what it's like to be the guy doing that kind of thing and walking around the church on the inside of the church a whole bunch of times, speaking in tongues, falling over because we're laughing so hard we can't control it while listening to the same stupid song played by the same stupid saxophone for 15 minutes because we're taking down the walls of Jericho of our city we live in. I, 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 like, so there's ways that that can go wicked bad. Yeah. There's and and without without the magisterium, without that, we are all in a in a bind. We're in a bind because we we cannot say that that's absolutely because those people who say it's absolutely not God, if the church came out and said that that is that that is a manifestation of the Holy Ghost, they would need to accept this. You can't just yeah. be like, oh, the church. Yeah, I, I just I'm, you know, wing it on my own. OK, Pope, whoever your name is. Right. But I'm told to bring my disputes to the church. And if there's a dispute and I have a disagreement with my brother, charismatic and non-charismatic, we come together. We don't fix it. Two or three brothers come together. Still don't fix it. Take it to the church. We've been waiting. But yeah. if if and when the church says something about it and settles that, then it says the following step is the person who does not accept that verdict, that person treat them like a heathen and a public. Well, well, yeah. And you know, if, if, and when the church does come out and make at least some type of definitive statement on this, you know, I, me, myself will definitely assent to whatever it says, because yeah, I mean th this whole episode and this whole topic, I mean, I've got, 
so many things running through my mind, so many questions, so many, so many things that confuse me that it's hard to, for me to express what I'm thinking up here, you know, out, you know, verbally, but that shouldn't dissuade me from like Mark mentioned earlier, having these type of discussions or, or having people on that we don't understand because I mean, how else, how else am I going to grow? How else are you going to grow? How else is Mark going to grow if we sit in an echo chamber? Right. Um, I mean, even after this episode, I've had some questions answered. I've still confused and discombobulated almost to the point where it's kind of like, you know what? I'm just going to sit back What the church, what the church decides is what I will assent to. And maybe down the road, God will give me the grace and knowledge to come to a better understanding of the whole charismatic movement. Right. Um, I this, did, is, this is like one I, of the reasons why why when people say, well, the Nova Sordo Mise is not a valid mass, and I don't, I, I can't go along with that. It's because, mm-hmm. you know, we were just talking about my 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 hesitancy, my struggles with faith, my skepticism. God is God and his church are bigger than Mark's skepticism. And right. thank God for that. Right. Yeah. Because if all it was, if all it came down to was just what I could wrap my head around, man. What is the don't then don't even bother going to church because we're all hosed, Mark. <laughs> yeah, if we're it's all hosed. You were done, dude. <laughs> I'm not that bright of a guy, so you can't just you can't just base yeah. your faith based on just what you can wrap your little head around. It's got to be bigger than that. Well, that's how people get we off have into to. different different heresies and stuff like that because they try to rationalize or force themselves to understand something that they that may be on that may be beyond their comprehension, right? Or right. or you know maybe a sacred mystery as well. Right. I did. I did want to go way back to the beginning because, yeah. and I'm going to have to word this carefully because I'm kind of in my infancy on learning about the virtue of religion because coming from a Protestant background, the virtue of religion was never really talked about. I mean, yeah, yeah. it wasn't even a virtue really. Right. Right. So I, I've got this book from Scott Hahn and another guy named uh, Jared Stout or Stout, however you say his last name. And, and, and they talk about this virtue of religion and how, it seems in the post conciliar age, this idea that um, the virtue, re- the virtue of religion is not the highest, you know, uh, I don't want to say highest virtue, but it's not, you know, the love of neighbor and your feelings and stuff like that are more important than the virtue of religion. Can you within the charismatic movement, because there is so much emotion and, and feeling in that, is there a danger and ignoring and sir and and not adhering to the virtue of religion and saying my emotions are more important than than this virtue of of religion i mean it yeah, yeah within yeah. W- within the catholic charismatic movement movement specifically yeah so like it, to render god the worship due to him as the source of all being and the giver of all good things right that yeah you you could you could idealize and even idolize the experiences you could be an experience hunter you do you have that i mean there are sensation chasers there are people who they get so wrapped up in this that it's it's like analogous to uh people who are really involved in really radical kinds of direct uh activism direct action and they get i mean they're just pumped they're psyched because they got in people's faces and it was all intense and then it stops and everybody's kind of like, oh, I'm going away for the day. And then people are like, I'm pumped, man. I'm ready to go. Let's do this. And they keep going. And that's when you see cars flipping over and burning. <laughs> like right. that's when you're like, whoa, because these people. <laughs> and so that to me, you're going to you will have that in the same way 
that on the flip side of that, the people who are concerned of that direction, those people say, well, the idea that God wants your worship, but your worship is not holistically you. It's just your brain. But God made you a brain in a body. It's part of your body, mm -hmm. right? Like your brain is not your, you know, we're not we're dealing with the soul and stuff, but you're saying, but even that's animated. We are, the, the body would be the keys to this, right? To blank the soul playing a piano and all of the members and things that are connected in this way that, that animate this visibly for people. So my life force. And you know, so the idea being that sometimes it's easy to get so wrapped up in the intellectual side of things that you fall prey to like Spockism, <laughs> Like if you're Spock or data and like, that's what you are where you're just that dude. Whereas the others that the, these people who aren't the data people, well, including mm -hmm. them, but over here, they're worried about this crowd going way off the rails. And you can say, well, yeah, we have examples of that. A perfect example, St. Teresa of Avila, right? Versus Madame Guyan. Madame Guyan, I, I, she's of all of the enthusiasts that signed condemnations. Um, she's my favorite one because I genuinely hope that she's in heaven. That she, because she repented. She signed the condemnation from the Inquisition. She lived the remainder of her life, as far as we know, in silence, which is what she was told to do at a cloister. So she did this. It wasn't until after she died that toward the end of her life, they say Protestants came in from somewhere. And then when they left, they later after she died, they started producing material and stuff of hers. But the idea is, I hope she's there. But when she first started talking about this and, and Fenelon and others, um, there was no like certain schools of, of thought on spirituality had not developed. And so for them, they believed that they were doing something that was right and good. They were saying, look, we're praying all the time. The only problem is they were shutting off their mind. They were saying that you, you need, so they weren't just saying you need to get into like where you become nothing and God's everything to you. It was like, you are nothing, even action, like you're this passivity. And it's like, no, no, no. Like we believe in mental prayer, but that hadn't, that hadn't been fully settled yet. So you have this development that happens. Guyan took it too far. That's where we get Catholic quietism. St. Teresa of Avila. She ends up founding a fantastic school of spirituality and thought. And from her, we have an entire line now of Christian asceticism and mysticism spirituality that informs us as to what is the right and appropriate way to deal with many of the same things that Guyan was talking about. And sometimes it was only missing out on, you know, it's, it's um, what it's lacking, not what it says. Mm -hmm. So if you say, for example, like they did, um, even if God's or th that uh, if God sent me to hell, I would love him forever. I would still love him. And they said, well, you can't say that. And they said, but saints have. And they said, yes, but they followed it up with, but God would not do that. For if you loved him, God is not unjust. He would not send you to hell for that. Mm -hmm. You'd only be sent to hell for this. But because you did not include this, <laughs> you're now a danger, right? Like these are dangerous teachings then because you did not include that. So it leads, lends to the idea that God could do that to you. Um, that's similar to this. So you may have people 
who take it too far and they worship their experiences. Sometimes it's because they don't have the guidance of the magisterium in a developing spirituality yet. Yeah. At the same time, you also have tons of people that really do love God and they worship him as the source of all being and the giver of all good things. And if this is true, they would say that they give thanks for even more than we do. And so well, yeah. I got to at least give it up to that. Sure. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, admittingly, I know that I actually struggle with the opposite side of, of, of what the, okay. So I'm not, I'm, I'm not in the charismatic movement and I actually struggle with the feeling side of it because, you know, I'm not a smart guy, but I like to read what a lot of smart people say. Right. Yeah. And, and I've always said sometimes I mean, I Jason, Jason, don't, I, li don't lie. Don't lie. I, to the podcast. I said, I, <laughs> yeah. I, I always say that I struggle to bring what I read up here and drop it down to yeah. here to my heart. Right. Yeah. And, and so I know that's a struggle I have. And, and I guess there's a, a, there's a happy medium in that, that we should all be trying to attain because I, I like how you said it earlier, you know, being too emotional can be mad, but being too rigid in, uh, in your thinking and not, a, not applying the love of God to your life is also just it can as become, wrong as being too emotional. Rubrical. It can become mechanistic. Yeah. Well, right? you just go yeah. through the motions. Yeah. Yeah. And, and not to say that going through motions are bad because there's right. a, might be sometimes when you're not feeling it. And in those times when you're like, I'm just going through the motions, man, just go through the motions. That's okay. Yeah. yeah. You know, I, 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 I think back to, there's a, there's a movement that's sort of, I, I, an, uh, an analogy that that going on in in Judaism has been going on for a while. That really is a charismatic movement, but the people who are part of it are also very religious, and that would be the Hasidic. Yeah, the Hasidic yeah, yeah, movement yeah. is a yeah. very. I mean, it's not the same thing, and I don't right. want to confound the two issues here. But there is a lot of emphasis on personal experience, yeah. on uh, reverential joy, and 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 out you know singing and 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 movement is very much a part of it. But at the same time, they are—they're uh, all—they're often called the ultra-orthodox, which is not right. not a term that they particularly like, but and, and one I disagree with as well because it's the orthodox Judaism is its own thing. But it, so so that's an instance where that balance has sort of been met. Now I don't I don't want to like I said I don't want to conflate the issues here. Yeah, but there could be something like that going on, and I think I think it's important though that we. Uh, that you not be initially dismissive of something that has got so that that's that's going on in the church because there's no mistake about this. This is going on. This is happening. Yeah. Yeah. And I think to be just in, instantaneously dismissive of it because of what it looks like to you, I think is a mistake. And I I think the saints would agree with that. Um, and the 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 resurgence of the traditional Latin Mass movement. I mean, nobody expected that. Yeah. It's it, it it it's primarily a lay movement, and it's happening for reasons that are entirely different than what the the consensus in Rome believes is actually going on. Yeah, and so I, I do think there's something to it, but just what it is, I don't I don't know yet. But I'm I think open. It's, I think it's more emotional than people would admit. I think I, agree. I think uh, Mass of the Ages episode one is a yeah. perfect encapsulation of this. Yeah, that it taps into the the struggles that people feel in saying the parish i went to yeah it, it was good the people there are nice it's nothing against the individuals 
but there was something missing. I felt disconnected from the past. I, I didn't mm. feel the awe, the yeah. majesty, the wonder, the reverence. Yeah. Those are not just aesthetics. Those are also things that you experience. Like when you are there and you're experiencing, there's a, there's a point to the, the, the smells and the bells. That's not bad at all. Right. And you say it's, it's an all encompassing thing that surrounds you. It's without and within. And so there's a mysticism. I, if people don't see the mysticism in a, a low mass, <laughs> what are you doing? What, yeah. what are you doing there? Like that's the, you're being super duper quiet on your knees for a long time. Like you are definitely, you know, doing some asceticism today. And so like, just embrace that. And, mm -hmm. you know, I think that, I think that there's a lot of that across the board. And I think we have good examples of, of this, um, where people are on the one hand, robustly Catholic, they are, they are resolved. They don't want to go, by the way, these charismatics, the vast majority have, they know what the donors did. They know what the Circumcellians did. They know what the uh, Montanists did. They know what the Quietists did. They know what all these different groups did. They took an otherwise good thing too far. It started out a good thing. It was different. And in some cases, similar to things that had been going on actually in Protestant stuff, right? It didn't start with them, but it was similar to what they were doing. People could say, well, yeah, this is, you know, we see this kind of activity over here in the medieval you know, kind of the underbelly, the underworld uh, of that of that day and age. Um, Knox talks about it in enthusiasm. But the idea was they they said we will not. They're saying now we do not want to separate at all. We will do whatever we're, we need to do to stay. And we just believe this is true. And we're going to fight, too, to try to provide the best intellectual material to make sense of this. I think there's serious problems with some of it. And it all goes back to what we said in the beginning. It, sure. it comes from a place where they were like, well, yeah, I mean, we got it from David Wilkerson. And you're like, that guy is a complete wackadoodle. And he's, you know, I don't think he's alive anymore, but a wackadoodle. He did. Did he do some great things? Yeah. I mean, the book, I've read it. But at the same time, do we get our, our theology from them? Is that where we get it? Have we ever, have we ever yeah. gotten it that way where, we say, oh, yeah, the, the subsequent baptism of the Holy Spirit with the initial evidence of speaking in other tongues, that formula, that formula is foreign. And if they want, my opinion is they would need to have people rise up to say, we need to consider whether or not that is true. It could be. It could be that the description, because they can read the Bible, too, and come to accurate descriptions. Not every single thing they say is wrong. Right. So you can come up with accurate things from the Bible. Sure. Um, it, but the the point is you have to go through it yourself and you have to be willing to allow the church the time the experience the oversight necessary to be able to make the best human side of that judgment and trusting that god uh preserves the rest to ensure that whatever that verdict is for us that it is not to our detriment but to our benefit and i think that I think that as lay people who, uh, you know, for, for the majority of the people who listen to our show are traditional Latin mass people, extraordinary form liturgy attached people, what, what, whatever the, whatever the, the, the adjective, the correct way to describe us today is. Um, I do think we need to pay attention to the fact that these people have said, we don't want to separate from the church and we'll do whatever it takes to remain within the church. That means I think if they're willing, if they're willing to come up front with that, then I think we need to be willing to give honest discernment 
as their brothers and sisters in Christ. And let's, let's be open to that. I mean, that that's my take. I, I, yeah. I want to be open to what is, what is legitimately of God, whatever it may be. And I'm open to the fact that God may tell me, Mark, you're wrong about this. He's done it before. He does it like 50 times a day. It is entirely possible that I might be wrong about this, that my, my prejudices and my, my presuppositions and all that are built on things that are not real. That's well, happened this is, before. Well, th- this is the type of subject where you shouldn't hold such a hard line position that if, that yeah. if a decision comes out, that's against what you believe that it just crushes your right. whole belief system. You know yeah. I mean? It's, yeah. there's no reason to hold such a hard line stance on, on this issue. You know, I don't get the sense that these people are our enemy. I don't get the sense that yeah. they're enemies of the faith. I don't get the sense that they are that they have uh, i mean are, are there some within the movement that have a nefarious purpose name me a movement in the church where that's not going to be right yeah, yeah but yeah. by it but by and large i do not get the sense i i get the sense that these folks would like to be listened to a little bit would like you to understand what it is they're actually doing versus what it is other people are saying about what they're doing and sounds familiar I, yeah, it yeah. sounds real familiar. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and so that yeah. being the case, uh, I, I'm, I'm open to, to that discernment. And um, that's definitely, they're going to be continue to be in my prayers and um, I, because they're part of the church yeah. right now. Right. Yeah. Whether, you know, and so that being said, that's not, we should never want anything. We should, our prayer should never be God, please kick these people out of the church. Right. Man. And <laughs> you know, have, it's, it's crazy because, they may be one of the only groups that doesn't spend hardly any time compared to others fighting others inside the church. Yeah, yeah. They're out there <laughs> pumped up to, to tell people that. about God. They're like, oh, dude, it, yeah, God's like totally in my life right now. I love him. And you're like, really? And you're like, like you're a weird Catholic. And they're like, yeah, I know. And you're <laughs> excited about that. And we have to give them props. But I also want to say, you know, for people who are opposed, you know, give it your best because you're part of that discussion too. Absolutely. And Absolutely. so if you, you know, these, if you're somebody who says, I, I do not believe this, here's why I don't believe it. You should do that. And I, I want to, I should say this. I don't want to ruffle any feathers, but it's, it's something that uh, it's not me coming up with this. So there's an international body of um, exorcists, right. That did, a, did an investigation into the idea of, um, generational healing. Okay. And the healing of, of bloodlines, stuff like that. And I know trad people who do that. Right. I know certain trad people who attribute that to certain priests. And I know certain priests who certain exorcists, and I won't even say their name, but certain exorcists that when they talk about the, what's going on behind the scenes, sometimes it's, it sounds no different than spiritual mapping done by Protestants. And if we go back and look, some of that stuff began with Protestant people before it was with us. We didn't have that before. No. And so there are things, even even the um, uh, deliverance movement and stuff like that. We had. What I mean, do you? What, yeah. what, sorry, what, what do you mean by spiritual mapping? I'm I'm not familiar with that. So, I don't think yeah. it is. <laughs> so spiritual mapping, you had these charismatic types that would say, you know, they they pray up and down the street. And they would go around different areas like I did with that group I was talking about in the church that was doing the walls of Jericho and stuff. But they do it on the streets and they will sense and pray and discern even over maps to find out 
kind of where they believe there to be demonic hotspots. Like, let's say, for example, near a strip club, okay. a porn shop, something like that. You're going to have yourself. It's a hotbed of demonic activity floating around that thing. So they would say that that. So that if you have a map, you have people who would actually chart this out. You have people. I've watched interviews of people who are talking about uh, uh, demonological, geopolitical style war stuff where you're like, well, yeah, if in our geopolitics, we need to consider the demonology of these areas and stuff. And I'm like, that sounds fascinating, like as an extra, like almost like Photoshop layer on top of another one or like those old slides or films that used to have on a projector in school yeah. with the markers. <laughs> yeah. You know, you like add that. And so, but we should not replace our geopolitical uh, strategy with this. <laughs> Don't do that. Um, however, it, it might be good to know and be aware of this sort of thing. But that idea of mapping it out and saying, this city has this demon, right? This demon affects this region. And that that a uh, an exorcist knows this because a demon said it. That is where it gets into like, 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 okay, what do we do if there's conflicts on what demons say? And why are we really trusting this exactly? Like, and why are you asking these questions anyway? Like, what is this? And so, but then using that as putting it out in speeches and stuff. And I, we talked about it on the show before, but that is spiritual mapping. And I know people who do that. I know people who walk around, they pray. And there are others who just simply walk around and do prayer vigils. They just walk around. They'll do processions around their neighborhoods, praying the rosary, right? For protections of their home, stuff like that. That's different, but it's similar. And so you can look at things that even in the trad world that you can see are things that they do. And by the way, the guy who talked about the demonological geopolitical stuff uh, used as a key point in one of his arguments, he used a quote of a of a a demon that was saying what his plans were for the people the generation of america and they're gonna take it over and stuff and that was from a book written by a guy i went i looked it up um it's a book written by a guy who calls himself an apostle and he is a protestant guy who believes that our words are faith capsules that we project into the dimension and that it creates positive or negative based on our the words we select and that we're tapping into the positive energy of God or the negative energy. And that's what determines our reality. I and like I said, the crystals are coming out. Any second, <laughs> it, oh, totally, totally bro. <laughs> so, but that guy and that dude, by the way, if it wasn't for that stinking guy, I wish I never found this out because I looked it up. I'm like, I'm like, what is that quote from? He said, it's a popular quote. I'm like, where's it from? So I went and I looked up this book and I'm like, wait a second, who's this guy? So I looked him up and I'm like, oh, he says he's an apostle. I'm like, what other books does he write? I clicked on it, man. He was one of those guys. He was the main dude who promoted this, this book called, um, uh, what is it? Something not, not to malt in the toy box, something like that. Right? Like it's, it's this terrible stuff in your toy box. I forget the name of it, but it's the idea in the eighties during the satanic panic that yeah. he man toys right. or that Smurfs, right? Like I had he man toys, dude. Is My his parents, wife is his wife the monster monster uh, lady? 
the monster drink. Monster energy, energy drink. drink. <laughs> yeah. Have you seen have you seen her? She she's goes through a whole spiel about how monster energy drinks are satanic and are uh, satanic messages are hidden in the in the can of the monster yeah. energy drink and Oh yeah, I know who that is. Yeah, the 66666 Dude, I I was wrong. it's turmoil. Turmoil in the tool in the yeah. toy box. Yeah. That's not written by the same guy, but there was a there's a, a video and they were like the guys like He's like, he man is more powerful than Jesus. And he's like, these kids, they're raised to believe that. I'm like, because he says he's got the power. Yeah. Like, he's a cartoon, dude. That's a reach. He's a toy. <laughs> a reach. He's a toy. I had, yeah. had he man everything. Never once did I assume he was stronger than Jesus, even subconsciously. <laughs> dude, but my parents made me give all of my he man toys from my birthday and Christmas to a kid named Gabriel, who also, by the way, is the one who took my girlfriend in first grade. <laughs> okay? That cat did not need that. It was like well, a, sec a second version of all those toys, anyway. Well, maybe, oh. well, maybe those toys gave him a little bit extra power. Yeah, a little, a little bit more. But that, but that's what I'm saying. So that stuff sometimes influences even trad people in ways they don't know. De deliverance. A lot of people talk about doing exorcism prayers in their home, like by themselves and stuff. Bro, that's like Not so a new. Good idea. That's so new, dude. Um, you know, where do you find certain things like this? Go look in the manuals. Look in the in the uh, rituals. When people say you need to go back. And you need to find out, like, do you have Freemasons in your family? Because you need to, you know, way down the line. That would be something you would you would seem to ask during, like, uh, coming in for baptism, right? That you'd say, hey, by the way, we have these prayers, too. You may be riddled with these curses. Um, you're coming in. The baptism's not going to do it all the way. And neither is this. But you're going to come in. And in order to get rid of that, we need to go back and do some genealogical history on you. If they don't then you are leaving that person up to tremendous problems. If, I mean, so if, if we, if we say that that's true now, but those ideas, where did they come from? When did they begin? There are organizations that did a comprehensive study, including the, this uh, international association of exorcists, right? That um, largest one in the world. And they said uh, that they said, yeah, it comes basically from the 20th century. And it comes from Protestantism. They labeled, they named the book, what the book is, where it comes it from. It sounds a lot like it come from the Latter-day Saints movement. That that sounds something very, uh, the idea of generational. I mean, I, again, that's right, another right. thing I think I know what I'm talking about, but I don't yeah. want to. So, and I'm, I'm being really careful to say not generational curses per se. Right. Generational uh, uh, healing where you're going back. And, you know, so there's different, and that's a nuanced thing. But my point was only to say that sometimes we don't realize to what extent even even the laicization of um, uh, devout life practices and beha behaviors and ideas. When uh, I'm going through devout life by St. Francis de Sales, mm -hmm. he knows he knows that what he was doing was extraordinary because he was really for the first time in this way, making things that a lot of this was kind of more exclusive to in, in group things like the monasteries and the convents and stuff. Um, whereas he's just saying we're it's going out and now everyday people will do it. The, the more that people began to have their apostolates in a more concrete sense that by nowadays, what we're doing here, we aren't the first ones to do this. Catholics aren't the first ones to do this. Yeah. Right. There were, there were uh, your radio evangelists. Now we had some, 
All right. In fact, we had one that was pretty amazing, actually. <laughs> right? a controversial guy, I won't say it. Right? His name is Father <coughs> Lynn. But he's, um, yeah, but you have him, you have others um, that later went on TV, but we weren't the first and we weren't the champions of it either. And yet we use these things and we use them to great effect. But that's not, that's not an operation of the Holy Ghost, though. And that's not a, what we consider a gift of the Holy Spirit. It's a technique. So even though it's not comparable all the way, you can say it's not the first time, right? So we, there is an interplay sometimes where sometimes people outside the church do certain activities that we later do, but we don't do them for their reasons. And if the charismatics are, and I contend that they are right now, that and maybe there are others who say, hey, we've actually worked on that. There are people who have. I would, I'm, I would not be surprised to hear that but I'm not familiar. Yeah. But if they have not, they need to get, you know, they need to get on it stat because yeah. I think that's, I think that's the biggest thing. That's well said. I think, yeah, I, I we, we were definitely can have the discussion, but as in all things, eventually we are going to have to let the church be the ultimate arbiter of this. And I think, and thank God for that. I don't want to, I don't want to be the ultimate arbiter of this. I'm not, I'm not qualified enough to do that. I don't have that charism. And I think it was, uh, I think it was St. Ignatius of Antioch who said only the Catholic church possesses the charisma of truth. In a sense, we are all charismatic Christians. If you believe in Trinitarian, uh, if you, if you believe the Trinitarian Godhead and we believe that the Holy Spirit endows the Catholic church with certain charisms, yeah. uh, one of which being, for example, um, infallibility in matters of faith and morals. That's a supernatural charism yeah. uh, that that other that if we didn't have the story of Jesus as you understand it would, I mean, that could be an invention of anybody. We're talking about a, yeah. a story yeah. that spanned 2,000 years. The only way to get that story to you in its pure, unadulterated form yeah. is to possess the church with a special supernatural charism to preserve the teaching. And so in, in that sense, it's really not that foreign. Um, I think I think more discernment is definitely necessary, more conversation. And obviously, we need the church to weigh in on this. We're coming up at an hour and 30 minutes. Yeah. So I know we've got a I know that Jeremiah's got other things he like to do. And so does Jason and so does myself. I want to thank you so much. Yeah, for coming on the show. And I know we didn't, we did not exhaust the subject and yeah, we, yeah. we were never going to claim to do that. But I think, <laughs> I think yeah. you've given us definitely yeah. a lot to think about and a lot to, to start on. Uh, there's going to be some links in the description. If you want to uh, read more about this, discern more about this. Um, it is, it is my hope that the, the, the traditional Latin mass movement and the charismatics, we might be better friends than we think we might be. That's Who true. knows? Yeah. Who knows? Yeah, yeah. Um, so that being said, I, I, I'm definitely want to thank you for coming on. You know what we didn't do? We didn't, we didn't start. Pray. We didn't, we didn't pray. So that being said, we're going to go forward from this. We're going to end our show with a prayer, the prayer to the Holy ghost, because we have a lot to think about. And so I, I would invite you all to join us in this prayer to the Holy Ghost to endow us with some wisdom and the spiritual gifts that only the Holy Ghost can bring as we can, as we discern on this subject and on all the other subjects that we talk about here on Tradman. And thank you for everybody for joining us, especially uh, Jeremiah, the paleocrat. Um, check out his show. You all know his show. If you listen to our yeah. show, you definitely heard his. Yeah, come on. Um, but um, so anyway, yeah. please. So please go ahead and join us and uh, we'll, we'll say a quick prayer to the Holy Ghost and then we'll sign off. In nomine Patris et Filii et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Amen.
Veni Sancti Spiritus, reple tuora corda fidelium, et tui amores in eis ignim accende. Imite spiritum tuum et creabuntur. Et renovabis facem tere. Oremos. Deus qui corda fidelium sancti spiritus, illustrazione docuisti. Danobis iniorum spiritu recta sapere, et de eos semper consolazione gadere per Christum Dominum nostrum. Amen. In nomine Patris et Fili, et Spiritus yeah. Sancti. Amen. Amen. Closing thoughts, Jeremiah? It was a good time. It was a, it good, was a time. good time. And I'll let you know, man, if uh, if I'm ever, you know, on a beach somewhere, <laughs> I'll make sure with a tambourine speaking in tongues, there's somebody playing a guitar over there somewhere. Picks I'll make sure to record it, it and, and I'll share it on Twitter. <laughs> Picks, <laughs> you guys will know. It didn't happen. You'll be the first ones. <laughs> make sure you guys know. Jason? So, yeah, I, yeah, just a couple final thoughts. Is uh, again, thank you, uh, Jeremiah. Um, like I said, you gave us a lot to chew on, still a lot to lot to examine. But uh, as far as our show goes, just next week, um, hopefully, me and Mark will be able to release the first uh, episode in our series on the different uh, churches within the Catholic Church. Um, I'm hope we don't know which one yet, but we're working on it. And then also next week, um, I'm going to try to have a, a friend of mine come on who I have uh, been involved with the Colby Prison Ministries with him. He's heavily involved with it. I've done a few of those uh, retreats with him, three-day retreats. But I was going to have him come on and talk to us about the Colby Prison Ministries and what they do. And if anybody's interested in uh, – following jesus's command i believe it's in matthew 25 chapter 25 where he says visit those in the prisons um we'll learn about the good work they do and how you can involve yourself if you're interested yeah that's exciting i'm excited for that episode um other than that i all i have to say is this has been in a really it's one of my favorite episodes that we've done so far i feel like i've learned a lot and i hope you guys have too um continue to join us as we journey down this road to holiness together and, you know, it's like I always say, life is hard, but it's harder when you don't pray the rosary. God bless everybody. Yeah. God bless.